Welcome to episode 104. Today, the legendary Carol Jago joins us to talk about her book called The Book in Question. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Every cloud has literacy luminary. Carol Jago has been advocating for reading for many, many decades now as a middle and high school teacher. Teaching at the university level and serving as the past president of NCTE, the National Council of Teachers of English. Many of us adore her for the books she's written. These books were all about advocating for adolescent literacy. Carol visits with us to talk about the key ideas from her book called The Book in Question. In this lively conversation, we'll talk about why there's a reading crisis, what things cause students to choose not to read, and how to create a reading culture. In this lively conversation, we'll talk about why there's a reading crisis, what things cause students to choose to not to read, how to create a culture of reading, and finally, Reading in content classes. Now, on to today's podcast. I am so, so, so excited to have a living legend, a master of literacy instruction, Carol Jago, on the podcast. I consider you in a very revered, tiny circle that includes. Kylene Beers, Pernell Rip, Penny Kittle, Kelly Gallagher, Donna Miller. It's just uh, Rigi, Rigi Routman. It's just people who have advocated for literacy, for reading and writing, for speaking, for having literacy change the lives of students. And I think someone said on Twitter that, to, oh, this, this is about Rigi. And she said she has helped kids read, more kids read than all of us combined. And I'm thinking that can be said about you, Carol. So welcome. I'm so honored to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so delighted to be here. In 2015, you were awarded the International Literacy Association's Adolescent Literacy Thought Leader Award. And that is so huge. And now you work uh, as the U.S. Department of Education, you're serving the National Assessment of Governing Board, overseeing NAEP assessment. So that's huge as well. But of all the things that you have done, can you tell us a story about from your 32 years of teaching about a story that has really informed your practice still to this day? Well, one of the things that informs my practice from beginning to end is being a reader myself. My family tells this, this story. So I'm the oldest of five children. And when I was 10 years old, my mom needed to go to the hospital to have my 
brother. And I said, you can't drop me off at the neighbors. I finished my book. We need to go to the library. And they, my mom and dad, had to drive to the public library on the way to the hospital. And to me, that story, um, just reading is part of who I am. And I believe that that has helped me create readers among my students because my belief in books to entertain, to offer solace, to take me away from whatever is bothering me today, to open my world. I believe books can do all of those things. And I've always got another book I'm excited to talk about. And that too demonstrates a, a, a reason for, for reading. All those people you, you mentioned, Reggie, Donalyn, Penny, Kelly, they are all readers. And that's what make, I believe that's, that is, plays a large role in what makes their teaching magical. What I want to ask, uh, what are you currently reading right now? Or what is a what recent book has really landed in your heart? Uh, I'm reading uh, Louise Erdrich's The Night Watchman. He just won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. It, and I, I've been reading Louise Erdrich, I swear, for the last 30 years, uh, starting with Love Medicine. And, and what's really uh, has me turning the pages of The Night Watchman is, this is going to sound negative, but I don't mean it so. Like it's an old-fashioned story. It it it's not postmodern. It's not challenging me with its organization. It's a story about people that has just captured my heart. And she's such an accomplished storyteller that she weaves a tale that that you 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 can't you don't want to escape. You don't you don't want to leave. It's really brilliant. But can I talk about one more? I also really, really love Kazuo Ishiguro's Cloud in the Sun because it's, it's set in, in, so here's a Nobel Prize winning author that most people know from Remains of the Day. This is a very different book. It's more like his book, Never Let Me Go. And it's a little bit science fiction-y set in the future, kind of dystopian. And in this case, everybody has what's called AFs artificial friends that are robots. And uh, so, and he just kind of expands on that. The story largely told from the point of view of the robot. It's amazing. And I mean, I just, I think students, high school students would love this book. I I wrote down the word escape because you said, oh, this book, it's hard for me to escape this book. You were talking about it. And I think that's the love that we all want kids to have, right? Because we want them to so go into a book and be immersed in it and then ha- have a hard time leaving it because the characters follow you, their problems follow you. And I think that's why we want kids to read because it just transformed their lives so much. It's kind of like what Dr. Rudim's and Bishop said. He said books are like mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors that help us see in different ways and help us see ourselves. But in in that it's it's also all of those things also translate into a broad background knowledge. 
like children, nine-year-olds who become avid readers, they simply know so much more about plants, about history, about culture, about all animals that, and it's not because they're taking notes or keeping flashcards. It's, they have absorbed this knowledge about the world that then makes the next thing they read not so hard. And that includes their science textbooks. That includes their, 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 even the, the math problems they're offered. All of that background knowledge plays a huge role in reading comprehension. That sometimes we don't, we don't see that. We think we don't realize how valuable independent reading is for helping students become better, better readers. Right. I always think about, this is my 15th, 15th year of teaching, and I think, oh my goodness, all the kids who did not struggle in school, the one thing they had in common was that they were readers. Right? It has helped them with their writing, it has helped them with their ability to communicate really complex ideas, it has helped them understand complex ideas, and they are usually the most independent kids. Yeah, well, this is funny when you say that. I never, not once, told a student who was reading instead of paying attention to me to put down their book. Never, never, never. And it paid off. Like, like I, I, I can, I'm picturing this particular student who will remain nameless, uh, who never paid attention, never turned in his papers, and he got a five on the AP Lit exam. A five. Why? Because he was always reading. And that's what I, that's the story I tell myself about this is how we truly build into He was also a brilliant, brilliant boy. I can't take credit for that. Uh, but but it, it just shows that there are many ways to reach the goal of being a fully literate person. Right. And it's sometimes listening to your teacher, but sometimes it's finding your own path to to learning what you need to want to know i feel so ashamed because when you said that you never told never ever told a kid to put down their book i have done that several times in my career in my beginning part in beginning years of my career now i look back and i'm like and i have to be honest now if i if i had if i had a kid do that i i still want to be like oh i just want you to put your way your book but i don't really want to well okay so first of all do never beat yourself up for what you did before. There is no stupid thing in education that I haven't done. And the good thing about education is that every year you get a new set of students who don't know about all those things that you did and that we can start over and continuously try to, to be better, do better, think, think through how to do this work, work together. Oh, this is like teaching therapy for me, Carol. <laughs> Let's talk about your book, the book in question. That's your most recent book. You let there. Let's talk about why is there a reading crisis right now? Everywhere I went, I so before the pandemic, I traveled all over the country, uh, talking with teachers about reading, and everywhere I went, teachers wringing their hands. Oh my gosh. Kids today, they won't read. All they want to do is play video games and be on their, their, their phones. And 
what I saw that worried me so much that caused me to write this book was that I saw teachers giving up and just saying it won't work. So I'm going to stop assigning books. Why do I bother trying to build a classroom library? Why do I set up this independent reading program? Kids won't do it or they just go to spark notes or they just cheat and the rest. And what I believe is that if we give up as teachers, the world is in terrible trouble. Ugh. Democracy is in trouble. We we can't give up. And I think we've we've made some like wrong turnings. By that I mean we've worried too much about the device, like our kids reading online or hard copies of the rest. It's it, it, that's not the problem. Marianne Wolf in her book Reader Come Home talks about we need students to be have biliterate reading brains. They need to be competent, confident readers in both on a screen and in paper, online and, and off. It's not either or, it's and in both. And if there's anything the pandemic has taught us is that screens are us. <laughs> and, and just like, again, I think it has to do with a lot of teachers uh, still say, well, but I really prefer hard reading on paper. We've got research that shows kids comprehend a little better. There are a lot of things we can talk about, but that's not the problem, actually. The problem has to do with students actually engaging with longer texts. And I don't just mean fiction. I mean, fiction or nonfiction, that we need students to, to be have the stamina to stay with a story, stay with an argument, stay with an informational text that's, that's critical to what they, they, they need to, to know. I'd really recommend, by the way, Marianne Wolf's book, Reader Come Home. She's a, a neuroscientist who studies the brain. And uh, what she reports to, to us is that our brains are extremely plastic and we get good, children will get good at what they do. And so if what they're doing is simply playing video games, they're gonna get better and better at that kind of thinking. Whereas if they're reading, they're gonna get better and better at that. Our brains, those pathways are strengthened. And so we need to, to think this through. If uh, anyone doesn't uh, is like hesitant to invest in that book, just Google Marianne Wolf and, and The Guardian. The Guardian has t has two articles that she she wrote um, one last year, one the year before, that really summarize the heart of that book, and I just really recommend it. Right. You started to talk about the research with Marianne Wolf. Can you tell us more about what does the research say about the critical importance of reading? You know, uh, I, I think Daniel Willingham does a brilliant job of, of talking about, um, again, children getting good at what they do. Yes. Uh, building the fluency that they need in order for reading to become easy. As long as reading continues to be a struggle for, for students, uh, 
they're never going to enjoy it. Uh, and and so we need to go. Yes, we need to do a, a really good job of teaching children how to read, but we can't stop there. It's that fluency, the automaticity that it's, it seems to me and research NAEP score, NAEP reading scores certainly provide evidence that students simply aren't developing. I mean, it, it is absolutely heartbreaking fourth grade NAEP scores and, and uh, eighth, fourth, eighth and 12th. Uh, so NAEP is the National Assessment for Educational Progress, um, often called the nation's report card. And the last a set of, of, of results, uh, uh, scores that, that were, re, were reported demonstrate that not only is the line flat, has there been essentially no, no improvement, not just in the last 10 years, but in the last 30 years, but those students at the lowest level of performance in the 10th and 25th percentile, their scores have decreased because students at the top have increased. So the gap has widened. And why this is why I say it's heartbreaking is many of us have given our blood to you try to think and 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 invest in those students intervention programs and remediation. And maybe what this shows, maybe this is the moment when we can recognize that that kind of fix it strategy yes. doesn't work. No. We need to create readers. You talked about independent reading programs versus computer-based reading programs, kind of, kind of what you just said. Now, can you talk about the difference between the two? And well, again, I think everything is and in both rather than either either or. That a, a, simply a classroom that's an independent reading program that that's fine, but that's not your English classroom. Not, that's not a literature classroom. That's not particularly like a literature and composition classroom. Uh, I think that, that one thing we need to do is we need to bring reading into the content areas much more. So, you know, so, so part of what happened with this focus on reading and math is we took time away from social studies and history. And the problem with that is those are the subjects that a lot of students, particularly boys, are most interested in reading about. So what we what we need to do is to rethink that balance of what we're expecting students to read, raise those expectations, and while all the while nurturing independence. So so give students choice, but it could be controlled choice. It's not like Yahoo, whatever you want, I'm gonna let you read whatever, uh, something forever and ever and not come out of your comfort zone. I'm your teacher. I need to challenge you to read books that are going to cause you to, to stretch a little bit. Yeah, I, I always tell teachers talk, when I talk about multilinguals, I always say we want to stretch students, not snap them. And so you're talking about oh, that's good. Right? You talk about, yeah, we want to stretch kids. So we give them hard books, but not books that will that will destroy the love of reading. Right? That's so right. And, and we've done that, particularly in the upper upper grades. I've done, you know, you talk about things that you could wish you could do over. I, I know I have occasionally done that. Uh, 
But I, I, I also always, you know, with let's say a book that I know is going to be a, a big stretch for students, say, say to them, I'm here to help. Like, I'm not here to give you a quiz because I want you to get a D on this quiz. I am here for any question you have. The more questions, the merrier. How can I help? Let's, you know, one of the very best reading strategies is rereading. Mm. And, um, but it doesn't have a cool graphic organizer or acronym, you know, so, so you don't, but that's what good readers do when comprehension breaks down. But on the other hand, no kid's gonna read a book twice. So, so we need to help students recognize for themselves when comprehension breaks down and they need to reread. One of the best ways to, to help that to happen is to invite students to stop and tell either a partner or themselves or you, the teacher, just re recount for me what you just read, just in your own words, because that kind of retelling cements the, both cements the learning, but it also points out where you kept, where you missed something, where you didn't under, understand it. And again, this is an authentic, this is what real readers do. I, my husband and I go for walks every day. I'm always talking about what I'm reading. <laughs> that, that's what readers do that helps them with their own comprehension. Right. It's you're saying this is what readers do and teachers have a responsibility of sharing. This is what we do as readers. And this is why it's so important for teachers to read and they can share. Hey, I just read this text. I read this passage at home. I just want to show you what I did to understand really difficult words or a really difficult sentence structure. Yeah. Well, difficult words, you, you, I mean, vocabulary is a huge issue for multilingual students. And here's an example where electronic texts, e-texts are just superb because frankly, nobody looks things up in the OED. Okay, my husband does, but nobody else pulls out a big dictionary, takes out a magnifying glass. And yet uh, when you're not reading in your second language, there, there are so many words that you need. But on an e-text, you just point your finger and not only do you get the, the definition, you get the correct definition for that context. This is miraculous for help for, for readers. So I think that that's one aspect. We also, because we, we need to help students kind of know when this is a critical word. Yes. Like you, some things, you can skip, but you start skipping too many things and you're lost. How do you do that then? How do you help kids realize? It's very hard. It, and it, it's related to syntax. Is it the subject of the sentence, the verb of the sentence, or just a descriptor? And I, I think of this myself. I'm a great fan of Marcel Proust. I've read all uh, of, of the books. And so I, I long to be able to read it in French. Well, this is never going to happen. But because when you just, when I look at the, I don't know a lot, some of these words in English that he's using and, and, and it just brings home the load 
for vocabulary load for reading in your second language. And that's why I loved what you said about you want students to stretch but not snap. Yeah. Because I think in one second language, you need to to come down, let's whatever reading lexile level or whatever you, you kind of measure you want to use. But it I worry about students snapping because they'd have to look up five words in a, in a single sentence. It's, it's that flow and that fluency is, has been hampered. And they're like, I'm not reading cause I'm not, I'm actually not reading. I'm just looking up individual words anymore. So, and, and this is, and let me make a suggestion there. Um, just again, from my own ex- experience uh, with in French, like pictures help a lot. So like magazines, are really a good way to build vocabulary, build fluency, because you've got a lot of assistive things going on on the page. You've got the headline that's probably written in pretty simple vocabulary. You've got a picture, you've got a caption. So so I, I really think magazines can be a bridge to reading more difficult text in in your second language. When you talked about uh, pictures, I wrote down the word uh, graphic novels and Penel Reap. And so when I had her on the podcast, I would I would tell her I want my kids to read uh, widely in a lot of variety. So they're stuck on graphic novels. So I tell them to you only get one graphic novel and stop. And she's like, um, I'm gonna challenge you on that practice. And now I really I'm like my kids. My kids who love graphic novels stay with graphic novels, but they they start to eventually move to different types of text. And so I love what you said. It's about, um, it's not what they are reading on. It's not what they're reading. Or it's just, are they loving reading? Because then that'll that's the first path, that love of that book will lead to something, to another book. I also think that the graphic novels are not what they were 20 years ago. There, it's 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 an art form that's evolving. That's much richer uh, than than it ever been. And again, it's something that some teachers have a hard time finding their way to because you associate it with comic books and trash. Uh, but but there are really extraordinary works of art, Alison Bechdel's new new memoir. I mean, it just, uh, and, and I had to learn how to read a graphic text because I, I just read the words. So I'm just turning the pages <laughs> really fast. I do, and to teach myself and see again, like that's a story that we need to tell our students right. that I was not, I was not availing myself of everything that was on the page in a graphic book because of my habits. And students have reading habits as well. Some of them are good, some of them less good. You you just said, this is a story we have to tell kids too. So this leads me to a question of like, how do you build, how do we build a community of readers? I, I think one piece of that community has to be easy access to books Yes, and lots of books, uh, easy, hard, lurid covers, new books. I mean, I, I know when young teachers and you go to secondhand, you know, yard sales and the rest, 
if a book looks dusty and old, that's not going to bring on your 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 reluctant reader. So I think that the classroom libraries are critical to to it all. I also think that um, we need students to be the sellers uh, of of books. Um, you know, and and to if it's always coming from the teacher, you're never gonna gonna, gonna get enough attraction. I, I think that your students who aren't readers actually don't know how to choose a book. So we need to set up protocols, whether it's a quick book pass or book tasting. You know, there, there, there are a lot of ways that teachers have found out to, just to get a book in kids' hands and see if you like it. Uh, but, you know, think about how think about how somebody who's how, how I choose books to read. I, I read book reviews all the all the time. I don't necessarily read every word of the review, but I know where to look in the penultimate paragraph. That's where the re reviewer is going to tell me if he or she liked it or not. I have reviewers I really trust. I'll buy anything they, they say. This is a this is a foreign world to students. What I'm talking about here. On Twitter, I mostly all follow other readers. Some Donalyn Miller says this is a great book. I'm on it. Uh, it's it's that's a community of readers, right. right? And that's what we we want. I also think that there are many things that we do as teachers that turn students off. Yes, let's talk about those things. Journals. Book reports. Book reports. Uh, keep 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 a log of your reading. Annotate your novel. Who annotates a novel? Now, do I do do I annotate my professional books and professional articles? Yes, yes, yes. I read my education leadership with a pencil in my hand because it helps me pay attention. A novel? Why would I? And yet. Teachers all over America, because people have told us, told them to do this, are asking students to. And so what happens is students think that that's the goal, a perfectly annotated book. No, no, no. Um, you have to annotate with a purpose. Now, if I'm running a book club, an adult book club, I will be and I will be underlining and making paid notes at the end and and. But that's a, that's my purpose because I'm going to kind of teach this uh, book, and what would we do? And also quizzes. And I'll tell you what the danger of a quiz is. Now, I understand why we use them. You know, hold kids accountable for their reading, but you can have a student who actually did the reading and still gets a C minus because she got it wrong. She misunderstood. Well, I don't want to punish her for misreading. I want to reward her for trying. And so just to think about how can we, how can we change that dynamic with, within our, our classroom? Because I want to say, kids are kids. Sometimes you have to, if you don't hold them, do something to hold them accountable. So here's one thing that I, I think works sometimes. So let's say, You've assigned whatever chapter eight of the of the novel you're reading together at a class, and almost any book that we teach, 1984, Animal Farm, you name it, uh, 
is on SparkNotes or some other. So go to one of those online summaries, take the paragraph long summary and put it up on the screen on your board and say to students, okay, students, I want you, we're going to take three minutes. Tell me four things that happened in last night's reading that aren't in this summary. Go. And if you didn't, if you didn't do last night's reading, I want you to just write me a note. Dear Mrs. Jago, I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee. I promise I will catch up tonight on my reading. Again, it's quizzes. It takes up teacher time to make them up, to grade them, to it takes up too much class time. All I'm trying to do is say to students, I see you. I know you're not doing the reading. Come on, come with us. Let, 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 let's stick together here. I know that you talked about uh, journals as not effective or report cards, and you talked about book talks, um, just like uh, Kelly Gallagher and Pernell Rip, they, they, they wrote in their book, 180 Days, and they talk about, um, yes, there's a balance between teacher saying this is the book I read and I loved it and I want you to read it too and then there's another one where kids are standing up and saying these are books that I love um, here come read with me because I, I still remember a kid uh, who was reading a book and I said hey where did you get this book from and you said oh yeah uh, my other friend was reading it before the month before and I was like that's awesome like they're talking to each other and I never saw them talk to each other about the book I never saw the book being passed over but that must have there is evidence that they've taught, we're talking about books. Right. Yes. My, when my son, who's now grown, uh, was 11, he had his whole Little League team reading Richard Preston's The Hot Zone. Now, this is a really hard adult book. It's about the Ebola uh, outbreak. And why? Because it's really gross and, and you know, people are liquefying and li- just what 11-year-old little league team would love but it why did they do that because my son wasn't like a nerd or somebody who's always got a book in his pocket so if james tells you it's good you want to read it and that's the kind of well i mean i think that this is how you create that community of readers i think it's also maybe what libraries need to consider doing so instead of a white-haired librarian tell you, oh, you're going to love it, <laughs> that, that you have bringing students to, to, to talk. Even like kids really idolize children like one and two grades ahead of them. Bring those sl- just one and two grade older kids into the classroom to talk about the younger students. And that's that can be magical. Right. It's... What, what what we say, they listen, but when what their friends say, they act on. Right? I agree. So, you talked about quizzes and how they punish kids for missing the meeting. Can you talk about uh, book reports and journals and what do they do to kids? You know, it, it changes. It, it's when we think about what are the purpose, the authentic purposes for reading and we're setting up artificial purposes. So students are reading their book so that they can fill in in their journal. Frankly, they copy it a lot. Yeah. So, so what have we achieved? You know, they're, they're just copying from their, their friends so that they have something writ, written down. 
book reports. I, I've seen kids use the same book report from fourth grade on, you know, Island of the Blue Dolphins, not even a book that I, that I think kids should be reading, but they read one book in fourth grade and they turn in the same book report until they're in high school. So, you know, um, we like change the dynamic, right. keep, keep the purpose for reading, having that rich and powerful conversation, classroom conversation, whether it's a small group, reading circle, literature circle, or a whole class discussion. I mean, I want students to feel, if I didn't do the reading, I, I'm missing it. Missing out, yeah. And, and so I want to catch up so that I won't miss out tomorrow. I, I make it sound as though I, I could had that happen every day. I did not. You know, I taught real kids through, you know, and... You, you know how it happens. You find yourself, you're talking to the three kids in the class, <laughs> two of whom went on to go to Harvard, you know? So, so like, this is not, but I know that my goal is that conversation with the whole class uh, that, that really is what I'm trying to, to, to achieve. Right. Well, can we talk about that then? We Can we talk about their... Let's stay with the topic of in-class reading and independent reading programs. So I will tell you what I do. So as a social studies teacher, I have my kids read 10 minutes a day when they're 90-minute blocks. So they come in class and they sit and they're just reading. Uh, and then sometimes I'll have them turn and talk to each other and say, would you recommend this book to me? Right? And that's all they do. And then when kids finish, they just read the next, the next book. And then after the 10 minutes, we continue with our social studies lesson. But... Um, that's the only thing that I, I do to support reading, and kids seem to really love it uh, on their anonymous surveys. At the end of the unit, end of the year, they say, we love reading, we just want more time. I'm like, I can't give you more time. So can you talk about independent reading programs? How do they work? Um, I have a question for you. Are those, their books necessarily related to what you're studying in social studies, so they're just free, cho free choice? Yeah, free choice. Uh, you know, it... It would be amazing if it were built also, if it were also, you know, re related, it, it would take a, a whole lot of engi other engineering in terms of books. I, I think you're, you're, you're serving so many purposes by that investment of 10 minutes of your instructional time. First of all, you have the luxury of 90 minutes. It's harder to take 10 minutes out of a 40 minute class, which is what many, many middle school uh, classrooms are have your what it the one of the the things it's serving is simply calming everyone down you know students come in from pe from kissing their girlfriend in the hall from all kinds of things and they center that's really a good thing too and so i think in in your circumstances it's a perfect use of instructional time. What I don't ever want to say, though, is that this is what every teacher should do, is to have 10 minutes, 20 minutes, one day a week as reading, because every classroom community is different. Right. I, my period one is different from my period four. Period one, I would not, I don't need to take that time out uh, for, for a reading because they'll do their homework. Period four would never do their homework reading. So I've got to, so 
I want teachers to make decisions based on the students in, in front of them. And to really to, to think, keep the goal of creating readers. Why does independent reading, like you're describing, how does it get a bad name? When administrators come into the room yes. and they see half the class with their head down on the desk. So it's supposed to be silent, sustained reading, but in fact, it's uh, a quick nap yes. and the teacher taking attendance. And it's that's not the kind of classroom situation that 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 is a good use of instructional time. Would you now talk about uh, content reading? So reading in the content classes. So in one of your in one of your chapters, you talk about um, when there's really complex sentence structures. So what do you do when to support reading in, in content classes? First of all, there is more new vocabulary in a biology textbook than there is in most of the any of the young adult novels that, that students are, are reading. So I what has happened in many, many history and social studies classrooms is teachers have stopped assigning their books, the textbooks, because they say, well, kids can't read them, they won't read them, so I'll just deliver the material. But that's a, then what happens is kids get are getting less and less practice reading. So it, it's a downward spiral uh, that uh, the, the opposite of, of a virtuous circle. I think we need to bring re, uh, content area reading, not only back to content area classes, but we need to bring more nonfiction into the independent reading that we're inviting students to do in an ELA classroom. Um, you know, most teachers are women. It's just the way it is. And I know this is a gender stereotype, but most women like reading fiction. And so that's what we bring to our students. Those are the books that are in our classroom library. And we are right now at a remarkable moment in pub publishing for young readers that there is more and more nonfiction, brilliant nonfiction with complex syntax, yet uh, multi-genre, so, you know, with images and primary documents, we need bo those books to be part of our classroom libraries and what we're, we're talking about. Because again, that's how we learn about the, the, the world. Um, that's how we get past the, uh, terrible prose in most textbooks. I mean, it really is like, if you look at a typical history textbook, uh, they're really hard to read because they're so information laden right. and there's no voice in, in, in it. So instead to invite students and to get them reading some of the more uh, meaty and exciting books of, uh, about that are that are out there. Also, books that are arguments. I'm thinking about Isabel Wilkerson's new book, Cast, or or her 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 earlier book, The Warmth of Other Suns, about the Great Migration. You know, these are uh, this is the kind of nonfiction that tenth, eleventh, twelfth graders would eat up because it's an argument. 
where whereas you know their their history textbook is kind of boring frankly yeah you're talking about like uh we want them to read but let's find them some, that's something compelling that will keep their attention that will engage them in speaking and thinking and reading and writing yeah what happens when there's like a really tough a paragraph or a sentence structure that's really hard well, if it's if it's a, a text we're, we're we're studying together, that's my job to find that passage and to bring it forth, and then to model. Like I, you know, um, elementary teachers, primary teachers know about a think aloud, and how you you model what a good reader does when the going gets tough, and how you pause and say, "Wait a minute, that didn't make sense." Uh, let me see, did I skip over that comma? Did I skip over that semicolon? Uh, oh, I don't know what this word means. You know, just like modeling how good readers have to slow down and think through complex syntax. What's hard is that, let's say with reading in your second language, you're reading slowly. And so as and you're meeting a lot of challenges into at a word level and what happens is by the time you get to the end of the sentence you forgot how it began yes, oh, yes. and um that's the, that's the reality for for anyone at, at an emerging stage of, uh, of reading and we just have to help students not get so discouraged they they throw the book against the wall you know and to say you can get there yes it's hard but it's uh i'm here to help you we're going to do this together i'm going to model it and it is hard i i uh science is is not uh, my strength but I have a great, great friend who's a microbiologist here at University of Chicago, and he writes a blog. And because he's my friend, I follow his blog. And I, I, I told him that I, I use the opening paragraph of his blog in a workshop because it was such an example of I can read every word on the page and have no idea what he's talking about. I can sense. He's being funny. <laughs> I mean, it's not like erudite, tough, dense science. He's, but I don't have the background knowledge. And there are so many words though there that are not computing for me. And that's what our English learners or our second language learners are facing every day with every text that they pick up. And so we need to kind of remind ourselves of, of what that struggle feels like. Well, you're definitely speaking to our audience now when you're talking about multilinguals. Would you talk about in your experience of 32 years and now you've done consulting it because you're, you've worked at the National Council of Teachers of English and because of your resume, what have you seen in terms of helping kids who are multilinguals and reading? One of the really, uh, uh, I think, exciting developments is the uh, young adult fiction. I'll tell you why. Now, I do not believe that young adult fiction should be taught chapter by chapter, take six weeks to read a book. That is not what I'm talking about. But the advantage 
for students who are reading in their second language is that most young adult fiction is largely dialogue. And so it's helping them at an oral level while they're reading. And so, you know, and also the dialogue uses shorter sentences. Um, They understand the context because it's about young young people talking about young people problems. Uh, And uh, so I, I think that that, and then builds confidence because so much of acquiring a second language has to do with attitude. If if you come to the text with a sense of confidence, this is hard, but I can do it, you're much more likely to to succeed. And I believe that many of our most struggling readers have very low confidence. And, um, you know, I, 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 I hate to say this, but it's just so critical right now for readers to uh, uh, acquire English. I mean, right. and I don't say that in, in, as, it, you know, by, by, but I'm watching the, the European Cup right now. All the signage is, is in English. Uh, it is everybody's best second language. And is again, if you want a career in math, and science, you're going to have to write your papers in in English. You might have to defend your dissertation in English. And the earlier that students can develop that confidence I was talking about, uh, the the more possibilities are going to be open to them in the world. I think it's a tragedy that American students are are, are monolingual and how poorly we teach uh, other language in this this country. I think that there are all kinds of things about being multilingual that are good for the brain, that that make for a much deeper understanding uh, of human nature and and the, the, the world. But right now, students need to be able to make their way through academia, largely in English. Right. It's kind of like a toolbox or tool belt. English is one tool. Their home language is another tool. Their texting language is another tool. So you use the tool in the right context, right? So we're not saying you don't use the hammer for everything. You don't use a saw for everything. That would be a disaster. But you use the hammer when you have a nail. But you use a saw when you want to cut a piece of wood. And so it's really saying, teaching kids, when do you use this academic language? We're not saying it's better than your home language. We're saying, when do you use your home language in what context, right? Uh, The last thing we want is for students to lose their home language. That would be a tragedy. It's a generational tragedy when when that happens. Uh, But as teachers, we want all the, the possibilities to be open to to our children. Would you share about um, what's the role of students reading in their home languages during as a part of literacy? Oh my gosh, yes, because it's building that background knowledge. So again, and building a sense of of uh, I like reading. This it allows them to read with their parents. Yes. Think about how powerful that can be to have conversations between children and their parents about it. Uh, I think. And it will help them not lose their their um, home language. Also, if they continue in their home language reading, it will develop 
their academic language in that they're in that language that they, they um there are many people my, my mom went to school in america uh only speaking sicilian and um her, her italian well it's not italian it's sicilian, sicilian. Uh, is a kitchen language yes. like she never she 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 goes she goes when she went to italy she's 95 right now she's not traveling anymore but when she um goes to italy she struggles because there's so she never read in in, in italian and wouldn't it be wonderful if students, that was one of the ways that their home language continued to develop was through reading in that language. Right. Oh, you're speaking to so many language specialists and their hearts are like pitter patter. Yes, because they, we want to maintain and sustain students' home language. And you're saying, yes, let them read in the home language. It supports their background knowledge. It gives them an opportunity to talk to their families. Uh, so you feels confidence. Yes, feels confidence. You're right. not always feeling like I've got to read a first grade book when I'm in tenth grade. Right, because I know the the students who are my who are, my multilingual students who are avid readers in the home language are avid readers in English. I, like it's always the case. The kids who read in the home language who love reading do better academically as they transition, as they learn and acquire English. Here's one other thing that I think is really interesting is different languages um, like treat stories differently. You know, tell like, so, so when you're monolingual, you've only seen one way that, that a story develops or how, let's say the, a journalistic mode in French is very how newspapers are written is very different from uh, from how an American uh, newspaper crafts an opening lead. These are interesting things, okay. and and it's a, a multilingual individual has a multi-track brain, and that's a powerful, powerful thing to to bring forward in the world. Right, they can see different perspectives, and they can merge them together. So I want to end with one last question about um, you talked about reading a book chapter by chapter. Can you talk about your thoughts about that? I think it kills a book. <laughs> Nobody. What, what, it, I have never taken six weeks to read a book in my entire life. That's not how you read. Uh, so I think that it makes sense. Let's say we're teaching a novel. Right. Yeah. To spend a lot of time in chapters one, two, and three, when you're getting used to the characters, your the setting, the author's style, invest classroom time then. But bit by bit, assign more and say, okay, have you know, get read to page two hundred by Monday, and then we can talk about big ideas instead of me as a teacher coming up with dopey questions to ask from that chapter 14, which really maybe aren't that important. Think about books you've read that you love. You don't remember every detail. And yet you'd think if you looked at some teacher materials for for teaching a novel, the level of detail is, is absurd. 
right. is, is, is not important. It's like you can't see the forest for the trees. Yes. You can't experience the whole of the book because you're so busy down in the weeds. Right, right. I... I remember a teacher who will remain nameless. That was my teacher, AP teacher, and uh, he, the teacher assigned a classical text over the summer. And the teacher was notorious for saying, when you come back to the first day of school, you will be quizzed on it. But <gasps> not the theme, not the characters, not, the, not the, the conflict. It was, what was the color of the person's shoe in the kitchen? And it was like, and the, the teacher said, and we were like, why are we doing that? And the teacher said, because this is the only way I can assess if you actually paid attention. That's, and what, so it punishes the kid who read the book in, in June too, right. compared right. with the kid who read the spark notes right. that just maybe mentioned the color of the shoe right. the day before that, that quiz. I think again, it's the, and trust me, that's not about, that's not, I've, been the college board's chair of their English advisory committee. That is not what the AP exam values. <laughs> well, this has been a heart filling, so rejuvenating conversation. I am, you heard, you have just, it's been like it, the ability to talk to a hero, right? For, for many, many years, and you continue to work and support our adolescents. I like to end the podcast in with this way. It's called traffic light teaching. So a red light is something that you would ask teachers to stop doing. A yellow light is something that you, it's like when you see a yellow light, you start to slow down. What is you? What is something you would ask teachers to start to do? And then a green light is, what is something you would ask teachers to keep doing in their practice regarding reading? What a great idea. I, I would say red lights, stop asking dumb questions <laughs> or asking who's, you know, identify quotations, who said this. Uh, a yellow light, like a, a, a caution, examine, it's time for all of us as teachers to re-examine our curriculum. Yes. And just stop and pause and think about what you want to continue to to, to teach. I understand how hard it can be to teach a new book, but think, let's think in that direction. And the green light, I would say, continue to read yourself. Take this summer, take this time to uh, replenish your own reading life and remind yourself of why it is we do what we, we do. And you have helped us understand why we do what we do, what we love helping kids read. What would you say to teachers who are like, I don't want to teach reading or I don't want kids reading for 10 minutes in my class or just reading, not making the space for reading? I think that if you don't make space for reading, you're not making space for learning. Right. Well, Carol, thank you again for this amazing experience. We wish you luck as you congratulations on being elected to the board of the International Literacy Association. You, you at the helm, will help us in so and continue your advocacy work for literacy. So thank you so much. Thank you for your invitation. It's been a pleasure. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation 
is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. Carol was so inspiring. You can just hear her passion for her work, for students, and for teachers. She reinforced the need to have students fall in love with reading. She challenged us to allow students to read in different ways. Yes, that means physical books, audiobooks, and electronic books. The goal is to seed and to nurture a love of reading and to help students form a reading identity. She asked us to consider not damping the love of reading by making sure that annotating is purposeful and not to mandate required reading. Carol asked us to not use book reports or journals and instead just have students talk to each other about the books they've read. Finally, let's stop punishing students with quizzes and instead facilitating discussions about the book. I hope Carol has reinforced your work in nurturing a love of reading. In the next episode, we have one of my new friends, Kelly Boswell, come join us on the podcast. We'll talk about her book called Every Kid a Writer. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your